you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. At one point early in our reporting, producer Natalie Chanovsky and I visit Mr. Gomez to learn more about the death of his son, Oscar Gomez. We don't record, but we debrief in the car after. And one name in particular sounds like a lead. What, what are your, what's your takeaway? Well, what do you remember most? Um, I mean, one of the things that I definitely want to look into is this woman, Lisa. So they mentioned that right after Oscar died, this girl, probably a student from UCSB, met them at one of the memorials for Oscar. And she came up to Oscar Sr. and said, I never knew your son, but I want to help you. I totally had the same questions about what's her motivation? Like all of a sudden she shows up and she wants to, she never knew Oscar, but she wants to be part of the family, right? Mr. Gomez says Lisa spent months helping him with the investigation, and he's still not really sure why. He seems suspicious. He says we could find her name if we look through a book about 1990s Chicano student activism. He thinks she's in it. We order a copy, and there on the cover is a photograph of student hunger strikers taken by Lisa. The photo credit is our first bit of information about her. Her full name is Lisa Valencia Sherritt. We reach out to the book's author, and he gives us her cell number. To my surprise, she texts back, and she seems excited to talk to us and get involved. She writes, I have no doubt that if Oscar Gomez was alive, our whole state would be in a better condition. And then, Lisa messages us that she's found a briefcase from almost 30 years ago, full of files that could help us with our investigation. I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez, and this is Imperfect Paradise, the Forgotten Revolutionary. Like Samsonite? Yeah, it is a Samsonite. They don't make them like this anymore. Yeah, I'm embarrassed to say it took me a minute to figure out how to open it. Uh, oh, wow, look at that. Lisa says she has too much going on now to meet for an in-person interview just yet. But in the meantime, she sent us this briefcase that looks like it belongs in a Mad Men episode. And inside is her research from when she was helping Mr. Gomez investigate his son's death. Look at that. So we got some... Uh photocopied newspaper articles. Those are pictures of uh, Oscar, of Oscar, right? Mm -hmm. There are dozens of manila envelopes, drawings of Oscar's injuries, newspaper articles about Oscar's death, 
and copies of the Autopsy and Coroner's Report, which we've already seen. There's legal research, brochures from Oscar's memorial, and emails to University of California Santa Barbara officials about bluff safety. There are also personal notes and homework assignments. It's like a time capsule of a college student's obsession. And there's one page in particular that catches our attention. A lined sheet of notebook paper with familiar, slanted handwriting. What's this? It says, uh, in handwritten pen, Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department, who handled the case? Sheriff Thomas. At the bottom of the page, it says, students in the apartment. Ooh, we got some names. I'm guessing that students in the apartment means the people at the party Oscar attended the night he died. Noel Huerta, we knew that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony Olguin, Enrique Mendoza, Javier Frigedo, Jose Gonzalez, David Velasco, Leon Mendoza. So that's seven people plus Oscar. That's eight. That's way more than we've ever heard of before. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, this certainly uh, makes things a little more complex. Six new names that we haven't heard of before. We search online for the names, make calls to numbers that turn out to be disconnected, send Facebook friend requests, and write many letters to many different addresses. We show the note to Mr. Gomez, and he confirms that, yes, this is his handwriting. He doesn't remember much about the circumstances of writing the note or where he got the information. I'm realizing that none of the records we've gotten from the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office give details about the apartment where Oscar spent his last night and do not include interviews with potential suspects. No six names. The Sheriff's Office must have more on Oscar's case than what they've shared with me. After the break, I'll find out just how much. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. We want to see what investigative documents the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office has on Oscar's death. So I pick up Natalie and we set out to drive from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara. So it's on your mind. Um, I'm looking at this little note that you're the best dad ever. <laughs> it's very cute. Well, that's just one opinion. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Where's the other side? <laughs> All right, let's get on the road. 
All right, so it's going to be an hour 49, 89 miles away. Head west on York Boulevard toward Noolden Street. After two hours and a few wrong turns, we make it to the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office. We're here to talk with our public information officer, Raquel Zick. I'm a dolphin. And Natalie, my daughter. Raquel Zick looks just like her staff photo. Long hair with highlights, blazer, and a perfectly white smile. She takes us to an empty bench outside where the deputies usually eat their lunch. We got the, the coroner's report. Um, so one of the main things we want to know is, what are all the records that the sheriff's has beyond this? Um, so there's two reports. It's the coroner's... Uh, Raquel tells me about the coroner's report and the autopsy. 15 pages total, which the department already gave us through our public records request. But what we want to know are the details of the investigation into how Oscar Gomez died. Details that are in the major crimes investigation. What's all in that major crimes investigation? So that would be all of the follow-up investigation pertaining to the whether or not it was suspicious circumstances that led to the death. Um, does that include notes that the investigators took of the people they interviewed? It's narrative, not notes. It's narrative, okay. Do you know about how long that is? The, the whole file is over 150 pages. Okay. 150 pages? That's practically a whole novel. Up until now, I've been trying to piece together details about Oscar's death with just the autopsy and coroner's report. And all that's public record, right, that I can request. Well, see, here's the problem. Yeah. So, and let me answer a question with a question. Okay. What is the, what are you guys looking into this for? So, we feel it's in, in the public interest because he was, he was a prominent person. Mm-hmm. He's had a, an important role in the Chicano Civil Rights Movement of the early 90s. And the circumstances are, of his death are still an open wound for the historians, for the family, for the friends. So um, we're trying to add any new, any new information. According to California law, the sheriff's office does not have to share any investigative records with us, even on a closed case. The law doesn't say agencies cannot share that information, It gives them the choice. So I'm trying to convince Raquel that the public good for releasing the information outweighs any harm. Are you you coming across people who who are telling you that they have information that they haven't shared with us? Um, No, we have not come across that yet. So here's the thing is that, you know, when we have a record for a case like this, um, it is currently closed out. That case can be reopened if we have further leads that we feel we need to follow up on. So that's where we come into this like delicate balancing oh, act see, with, our, with, with my work with you right, is that right. I want to know if there's something that we need to look into or if you're coming across information that people are telling you that they didn't share with us originally, we would want to know that. We would want to be able to follow up on okay. that. And then Raquel? adds another complication. 
if because we reopen an it and we turn it to an, a, an active investigation, then you're not allowed to have access oh. to it. And so that's where we need to strike this balance between um, our, you know, is the case historic and we're done with it? Or is there things that you're coming up with that people are telling you that we want to look into? It's taking me some effort to understand what Raquel is saying here. She's asking us to share any information that we get with her. But she's also warning us that if our information sheds new light on the case, then the sheriff's department will reopen the case and they won't share any information with us. Raquel keeps repeating, it's a delicate balance. We understand that people are going to be a little more apt to talking to you. And um, because you you definitely come at this from a different angle than we would. So we kind of want to wait and see what comes of your interviews, because what you come up with and the people, you know, what people will be willing to share with you could be helpful for us in reopening this investigation which means that we may not be able to release those 150 pages until you can get through some some of your interviews and we can kind of have more of a discussion. This line of reasoning, that in order for the sheriff's office to consider helping us, we first need to share our findings with them, it reminds me of something Oscar's dad, Mr. Gomez, said. They told me at the time that, that, that they were closing the case. And, uh, and, and that if I found evidence to show it to them and they will reopen it, I said, that doesn't make sense to me. I said, I'm not a, I'm not a sheriff. I'm not an investigator. You do, that's your job to do. How am I going to do that? Mr. Gomez questions whether investigators did their due diligence finding out how his son died. I bring that up to Raquel. I can, what I can tell you is there was, ex- obviously, if there's 150 pages of documentation, there was extensive follow-up done on this case. Um, and there was a lot of people interviewed. Now you're shedding light on, because then we saw that the investigation stopped 12 days later? Yes, pretty close. That was, that's a lot of work for 12 days. It is, yeah. And, and it's, it's funny because like hearing you say this like and and having a peek into what our our detectives do um, on a day-to-day basis when we have a, a major crime it's all hands on deck it, it's so important then to, to to see the documents to 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 show that because there's a perception out there that the department was racist and then there, there was that lawsuit filed by the father by Oscar Gomez senior mm-hmm. He's still angry. He still believes that there was collusion between UC Santa Barbara, the sheriff's department, and the county to suppress the investigation of this case. Okay. Because he feels it was a murder. Okay. I mean, I'm 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 sorry to hear that he that that's the um, that that's the. Uh, that there was at all like any sort of accusation towards racism because I'm not, yeah. So any portrayal we can do, you know, after looking at these documents, the the extent, what you described about all hands on deck yeah. and how thorough it was. Uh-huh. You know, if, if, 
we can't we can't show all of our cards if you're asking sure, us to sure, you know sure. enter back into the game. Sure. So well, we're not asking you to. Do no, that. not you. No, <laughs> yeah. but you know yeah. we would want yeah. to, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm interested to hear what you guys come up with. Even though the law is on Raquel's side, I have a problem with what she's suggesting. This is not a card game. Whether or not we get access to law enforcement records and the information in them shouldn't have to hinge on whether we share our reporting with the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office. The California Public Records Act, the same law Raquel is invoking to withhold records, says the agency can't even ask what the purpose of our request is, much less require we advance the investigation as a trade for records. And I'm struck that nearly 30 years after Oscar's death, After so many chances to handle this investigation differently, the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office is still so opaque about how they've handled this case. Even though state law doesn't give me a right to the investigative records, I feel the agency should choose to share them with me. And I do actually have the right to some of the information in them. So I carefully draft a follow-up public records request and send it to the Sheriff's Office. Raquel said she thinks the office shared the report with Oscar's dad, Mr. Gomez, back in 1994. He says that's possible, but he doesn't know where it could be. But if the office shared it with him once, I think they'll do it again. I asked Mr. Gomez to put in a request. He says he needs to think about it. I'm not totally sure why he's hesitating, but I want to give him the space he needs to make his decision. In the meantime, we get the text we've been waiting months for. Lisa is ready to meet with us. Hi, how are you? Good to meet you. I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Yeah, thanks a lot for making the time. Hey, I'm Natalie. Lisa's about my height, short. She has black hair and freckles. She invites us into her studio apartment in downtown Santa Barbara. Inside, she's set up an altar on her dressing table with incense and a photo of Oscar. There's not much room, so she sits on her bed and we pull up chairs around her. I have so many questions about what it was like helping the Gomez family investigate Oscar's death, about why Lisa became so invested in finding out what happened to Oscar Gomez, and about why it all came to a stop. Um, When did you first hear the name Oscar Gomez? When Oscar had come to campus. I did take pictures that day of that that rally um, that he was invited to. Lisa had to take pictures because as a college student, she was the historian for El Congreso, UCSB's version of Mecha. Mecha being the student organization that came out of the Chicano movement in the 1960s. Wait a second, you were at November 16th, 94? Yeah. Yes. I was aware that that Oscar was um, invited to cover it. Yeah, this guy, he has a radio show, and he's a journalist, and he goes everywhere. He's invited everywhere. Like, he's going to San Diego next, or, you know, he's all over the place, and he's coming here. By 1994, 
Oscar had built up a solid reputation in Chicano activist circles. For those of you who uh, haven't heard about it yet, it it was a big demonstration going down in the steps of the Capitol. He was at protests all over California, putting the most important voices in the movement on air. Vamos a tocar esta entrevista, you know, a little uh, interview here from uh, Ricardo Chavez out there, uh, also known as El Kool-Aid. Here he is interviewing a rapper named El Kool-Aid. First of all, what's the the issue especially affecting the raza in those areas, man? Right now, I feel what's mainly affecting the raza is, you know, that slavery is still definitely affect. And if you, you know, you can see this through driving through the San Joaquin Valley, through the Sacramento Valley, through the Salinas Valley, you can see this that people aren't getting paid jack nothing, and they're doing the hardest work that there is, yet, you know, the whole time they've been sprayed with chemicals and all this stuff, people are working in... So, the day of the Santa Barbara rally, Oscar was big enough that Lisa knew of him, even though she had not actually met him. How did that day begin for you? It was on the grass by by El Centro, outside. Elders from the community were there. And it was a really sunny day. Danzantes and drums and different speakers. This was the Take Back Chicano Studies rally at UCSB. The rally Oscar attended the day he died. It was organized by students who felt the university was trying to dismantle the Chicano Studies Department by undermining Chicano faculty. And all of this was about a week after California voters passed Prop 187, a measure that took away health care and social services from undocumented immigrants. The days after, when El Congreso students found out that Oscar died there, Lisa remembers a sense of guilt. We, you know, collectively invited this student, this awesome guy, you know, to come, and then, then he died. That's not why you invite someone who, you know, I mean, he's compared to Cesar Chavez. Like, for my generation, he was that person who was, he was going to do really big things. So when was the day that you met Oscar's dad? Um, that was the, at the one-year vigil. This was an event at UCSB that Lisa helped organize called El Dia del Bandido, a nod to Oscar's radio name, El Bandido. There was a poetry reading a press conference, and a march from campus to the beach where Oscar was found dead. That happened to be like the foggiest night ever in California, I think. People were so dedicated, you know, from Sacramento, you know, from Davis, from San Diego, from L.A., all over the place, students and community members and family and friends. And I just remember seeing all these people from so far away, like, wow, this guy was really loved, you know, and it was still... It was, like, just yesterday, you know, for them, like, the loss. And so then after there, um, then every we went back to El Centro. His dad and some others, you know, had set up um, on one side, like, all these red T-shirts and some signs. And it was all, like, Justicia para Oscar everywhere over there. And then, so his dad, you know, was... Um, like, no matter what, like, no matter what it takes, we're going to do it to, you know, get justice. After the vigil, Lisa walked up to Mr. Gomez and introduced herself. I told him, um, yeah, I want to I wanna help you. Um, 
He said, great. And, you know, gave me his number, Oscar Sr. And I, we started, you know, having phone conversations. We were like partners in crime, like partners in solving a crime, you know? So we would go on these, like, trips because we would travel to um, Sacramento, you know, and... Um, Mecha Conference statewide, the Mecha National in San Antonio. And so we would just talk, like start almost investigating, making a strategy of like, okay, we have to get more people to know about this. And it was kind of just doing anything, everything we could to raise awareness about it, to get, in order to gain support, to have a case. After the break, Mr. Gomez and Lisa make their case to the Santa Barbara County Superior Court. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah, I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Halfway through the interview, Lisa Valencia Sherritt says she's found two more boxes of materials from that time she and Mr. Gomez were investigating Oscar's death. I turn around and see them. Okay. What are these? So this is the box um, called Oscar. Um, and actually inside of here is the beginning of a draft of a letter to an attorney here in town. Like would actually would give him materials so that he could consider taking the case. Um, in 1995, Mr. Gomez filed a lawsuit against Santa Barbara County, the county sheriff, the county coroner, and the regents of the University of California on behalf of himself, his wife, and three remaining children. Lisa says she remembers writing to different lawyers asking them to represent the Gomezes. Nobody would take the case. Anybody who we talked to, who we who we called, wrote to, like, no, nobody. Like, there's no way that I'm going to put my reputation on the line to fight this losing battle because you're never going to prove that that a county and a sheriff's department discriminated against someone by not doing a thorough investigation. So it was just like, no one would say that, but that's what, you know, politely, they're just like, no, not going to, can't do it. We get a copy of the lawsuit at the Santa Barbara Courthouse. It's over 350 pages. But here are the basics. About a year after Oscar's death, the Gomez's sued the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office and the three other defendants for $7.5 million. Mr. Gomez had told us about this. The way they did everything was totally not proper. I was so frustrated that they wanted to close the case. 
that I went to the sheriff's department. We were protesting in front of the sheriff's department. We're trying to get them not to and to, to investigate further, you know, to spend more time on, on, on the case, you know, but they, they were totally against it. The only resource I had was to sue them. The family sued on six causes of action based on allegations that the regents, county, and its agencies violated the family's civil rights by failing to do a proper investigation. They alleged that the university and other defendants encouraged the Santa Barbara Coroner Sheriff's Office to reclassify Oscar's death from a homicide to an accident. The lawsuit also mentions that Mr. Gomez felt he was treated in a racist manner by the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office. And it lays out a story I hadn't heard before about how when Mr. Gomez arrived at the coroner's building to see his son's body, he says he was dismissed as if he had no right to be there. He alleged in the complaint that the deputy coroner told him, what do you think this place is, a mortuary? Mr. Gomez said he was shocked and horrified. Is the scenario possible that the sheriff's department messes that communication up and that just creates this animosity with the family? I mean, that it would have turned out differently if they would have, if they would have been treated, yeah, with respect as like a family, as parents. Both Lisa and Mr. Gomez told us they didn't expect to be awarded money, but they'd hoped that the lawsuit would churn up new information. In the meantime, they carried out their own investigation to find out what happened to Oscar the night he died. What Lisa learned from talking to UCSB students is similar to what we already know. There was a party, an argument. In one version, Lisa heard, it was about a TV show that was playing. In another version, it was about a girl. Then Oscar left. Lisa never heard anything about members of the big hazard gang being involved, but she does believe there was foul play, that something happened when Oscar left that party. In your suitcase, you had a list of six names, and we've been trying to track some of these people down. Describe, what do you remember that about that list? Where'd you get it? Yeah, those names had been given to to Oscar Sr. I never, never if it told talked you the names, to them. Would you recognize? Yeah, the uh, David Velasco, no. Enrique Mendoza. I don't think so. Leon Mendoza. No. Jose Gonzalez. I don't think so. Uh, Frigero. What was Frigero's first name? Javier. Javier Frigero. Nope. I have to admit, I'm disappointed that Lisa doesn't have any information about the six names. But I guess it's like how the lawsuit effort turned out. After all of their knocking on attorneys' doors, research, and investigating, Lisa and Mr. Gomez didn't learn anything significant. The defendants, the county, the sheriff's office, the coroner, and the university, asked the judge to throw out the Gomez family's lawsuit, saying there was no evidence to back up their allegations. The lawsuit never made it to trial. It was dismissed. The final ruling was in favor of the sheriff, county, and university. Still, Lisa remembers her time with Mr. Gomez with a lot of warmth. It was a good partnership because um, I knew um, 
that Oscar's mom couldn't talk about it. They had that agreement, you know, like for Oscar, the dad, that was his way of of dealing. And they respected each other so much that she let him, you know, go do what you need to do. And he respected her that he would be doing all of these things, you know, and traveling and stuff and not not tell, you know, and not bring that to her because she just couldn't couldn't handle that part of his death, you know. Um, and so I could go with him, you know, and I could talk with him about it. Like we laughed a lot. And so I think it was also was so therapeutic like a pressure valve because we were doing we were fighting for what we needed to fight for around 1998 lisa says her partnership with mr gomez fizzled she was no longer an undergraduate student and it felt like they'd exhausted all their options it's sensitive but i feel like i have to tell her that mr gomez's memories of their partnership are different from hers that he's grown suspicious of her on one occasion when we sat down with the Gomez family in their front yard, um, your name came up and they were wondering about your motivations. Mm-hmm. And they spoke like almost of being suspicious mm. of your motivations and why you kind of came in and then mm-hmm. out. Can you react to that? I could see that from their point of view. Like, yeah, who's this person came out of nowhere, you know, didn't know us was so involved, you know, doing all this stuff and then being so close, you know, and I didn't, like, keep in touch through the years. I finally asked Lisa why she felt drawn to Mr. Gomez when she was a college student. And, well, her reasons are different than what I expected. I had just gotten hired to be kind of like a part-time nanny. I was taking care of a baby who was... uh, having a really severe medical problem. And the baby who I was taking care of, I became really close to. And um, she actually um, died in February of that year of 95. With the baby, it was a disease, is that it? An ailment? It was a a seizure disorder that they never really figured out. but ultimately, through the science, they could understand it, I suppose. Yeah, they could just tell by the rate and progression of her condition that that's how she was going to die. And I was really grieving, you know, and it's not usual for a 20-year-old grieving a baby. Like, babies aren't supposed to die. I was having a really hard time, and I didn't connect well as much with other people, especially people who were just well, partying or whatever. I just, it was really hard to be on campus and around people in their normal life and stuff. It was around that time that Lisa first met Mr. Gomez at his son's vigil. She says she doesn't remember if she ever told Mr. Gomez about her reasons for approaching him, why she spent years trying to help him with his case. But it sounds like being proactive and feeling needed was helpful to Lisa as she was mourning the loss of the baby. Did helping Mr. Gomez and the family help you cope with the infant stuff? Uh, yeah. Yes, for sure. For sure, because I had no recourse with the baby's, you know, condition and everything. Like, I can't fight doctors or protest anything. Um, So I think it was, um, it was also with everything of Oscar's life and, and then the injustice of what happened to him. Plus, I had an immense 
suffering and grieving going on myself, you know? And so, yeah, I connected with that for sure. I feel like I have a better understanding, not just of Lisa, but of Mr. Gomez, about how the years and the grief and the hurt have made him suspicious of those around him, even those who try to help him, like Lisa. He's already spent so much time trying to get answers, with no results. Maybe that's why he's reluctant to request the investigative report from the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office. For Lisa, her time with Mr. Gomez was healing. She says she's going to get in touch with him, that she's excited to reconnect. To follow up on the allegations in the Gomez family's lawsuit, we request any letters and emails about Oscar's death between Santa Barbara County, the Sheriff's Office, and UC Santa Barbara. They reply that they don't have any documents to release. And there's one more thing. I learned that there's another person who felt blamed for Oscar's death. I wasn't treated very fairly after his death because there was different camps and those camps had theories of how Oscar died. That's next episode. Imperfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary is written, reported, and hosted by me, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. The show is a production of Elias Studios. Antonia Cerejido and Leo G are the executive producers for Elias Studios. Natalie Chudnovsky is the lead producer, and our associate producers are James Chow and Francisco Avilespino. Editing by Audrey Quinn. Fact-checking by Audrey Regan. Mixing by our engineer, E. Scott Kelly. Special thanks for engineering as well to Sean Campbell. Our music supervisor is Doris Anahim Munoz. The music is written, performed, and recorded by Joseph Quinones at Secondhand Sounds in Rialto, California. Our website, Elias.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, Emily Guerin, and Leo G. Imperfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com events. See you there.